Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another thrilling adventure that is an episode of JavaScript Jabber. My name is Steve Edwards. I am the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mime, but you're stuck with me. I'm still your host, mostly because Dan and AJ didn't want to do it. Anyway, <laughs> our panelists today are first, Dan Shapiro. How you doing, Dan? Hey, coming from warm and sunny Tel Aviv. Yes, it's actually been warm and sunny here. I mean, I was camping over the weekend with a church thing with my son. 110 degrees every day. We spent a lot of time in the water. Well, at least unlike Europe, we have air conditioning. So, you know, we can live with the heat. Uh, Yes, and when you're outside, the air conditioning doesn't really work that well. But uh, anyway, also is he of the more recently gray hair, as we were discussing, AJ O'Neill. How you doing, AJ? Yo, yo, yo. I'm coming at you live from the backs of my hands are red. Live from the backs of my hands are red. How's things in the backs of your hands are red? Well, it's not. I just kind of mashed that up in a weird way. Oh, okay. But I was, I was, I was uh, just going with it, and I had long sleeves to protect myself from the bugs, and inadvertently, or no, wait, that's not the right word. Anyway, protected myself from the sun with long sleeves, but my hands, I wasn't wearing gloves, and so I have a sunburn on the backs of my hands, and that's the only place I have a sunburn, other than a little behind my neck, but really not much. Yeah, you're it's more of a weird. pink neck and not a red neck. It looks like. The worst, by the way, is when you're wearing sandals and accidentally get sunburned on the top of your feet. Uh, Yes, I got that this weekend. And then the bug bites around the ankles, too. It was a great combination for feet yesterday. (laughs) And before we get to our guests, uh, I'd also like to say hello to the studio audience. Oops, sorry. Okay, you guys can stop now. Thank you. So I always like to throw in the studio audience. It adds more ambiance to the podcast. And after all that, let's get to our guests. Today, we are talking about IoT, otherwise known as the Internet of Things. Things very being a very specific term. I always love that as a suggestion on Wheel of Fortune thing. Okay, that narrows it down. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast. And you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with top end devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to top end devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv. And I renamed it to top end devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. First of all, we have Nick Hare. How are you doing, Nick? Hi, I'm doing pretty well. How are you all doing? Good. And Peter Hotty. Hello. Hello. So before we get going, why don't each of you give us a quick intro about yourselves, who you are, why you're famous, what you do, where you do it, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Again, my name is Nick. And I am a staff software engineer at a company called Betterment in New York City. We do have a lot of remote employees, including myself now, even though I just live just right outside the city these days. And I have work on the front end platform team 
there as a staff engineer and do a lot of stuff with JavaScript and CSS and accessibility and overall UX. But in my free time, I like to tinker with JavaScript on things, including internet-connected things, and met Dan at recently at the JSCon Budapest talking about offline first IoT, which I'm sure we'll maybe bring up a little bit today. Yeah, it was a cool talk. I enjoyed listening to it and meeting you there. So it's also worth mentioning that, you know, you, people can catch you at conferences and recognize you by your mustache. Yes, which, the mustache which we did, which we determined that, it, now. yeah, which we determined is not a Zoom uh, effect or something like that. It's real. Yep. Yes. For those of you that can't see, as most people can't on an audio podcast, uh, he's got these impressive mustaches that with the curls on the very ends, I mean, a complete loop. It's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, he's ever also does because uh, he has a ton of hair, but that's another story. Yeah, if you've ever seen my uh, avatar on GitHub or around places for um, my handle being Hipster Brown, Charlotte Brown with a mustache, glasses, and a little bit of curly hair. So, Oh, okay. Well, that's show note worthy for sure right there. <laughs> All right, Peter, your turn. Hey, so um, and I usually describe myself as a, an engineer and an entrepreneur. I'm the, one of the co-founders of Modable. We, we do a lot with JavaScript and IoT. It's kind of our business. I also am very involved with ECMA, which is uh, the standards body that uh, defines the JavaScript programming language and uh, is now, together with Nick and some other folks, defining uh, JavaScript uh, APIs for IoT. Way, way back in the uh, dark recesses of time, I, I started my career at Apple doing digital video back when computers had less power than a light bulb has processing power these days, which is kind of strange. I and mean, that also got me started on standards. I, I worked on the ISO MPEG-4 standard way back when, which is how everybody ships around their video today. And then somewhere in between there, I worked at uh, Marvell, which was a semiconductor company, which has been a really great grounding for me in working in uh, IoT here at Modable. So that's Marvell is different than Marvel Comics, right? Yes, that's and uh, apparently, apparently there was some kerfuffle about that at some point, which resulted in the founders of Marvel Semiconductor getting to meet Stan Lee. So uh, <laughs> that was that was kind of cool for them. Hopefully, he wasn't yelling at them for taking their same name, right? Yeah. Excelsior. <laughs> I think I think the yelling was left to the lawyers so that they could have yeah, go. pictures at the end. There you go. And then also, yeah, I'd like to clarify, L, right? Yeah. Right. Then <laughs> I'd also like to classify that he said ECMAScript, not eczema. Those are two very different things. So just for clarification. <laughs> Easily confused. Purpose. Easily confused. Yeah. Yeah, Alrighty, it's, worth, so, it's, it's worth noting, by the way, mentioning ECMA, that most people, well, I guess we'll get to that in, in more detail soon, but most people, when they think about JavaScript and ECMA, they think about the TC39. You're actually a different TC. Right. So before we get going, I guess we'll sort of get organized here a little bit. Dan, since you brought him on, you want to start out and what interested you and how we want to get started talking about JavaScript and IoT? Well, I don't have that much to add, to be honest. Uh, like you, I'm actually a bit of a novice when it comes to the technical implications of IoT. I, I think we kind of mentioned in the pre-recording conversation that everybody uses IoT, but somehow I never got into the technicalities of it. It's just that I met uh, Nick at the, the JSConf conference, and, you know, it seemed like a super interesting topic to discuss, the fact that JavaScript really runs everywhere these days, and it can run on devices that you wouldn't imagine can actually run JavaScript. I think that JavaScript even runs in space right now in, in on the James Webb telescope. So, you know, they wanted something robust, so they put JavaScript there. <laughs> I'm looking at AJ's face. <laughs> and so, so again, I, I basically invited uh, Nick 
to come on our show and he was kind enough to bring uh, to bring Peter along and and I I think this can be an awesome conversation. I certainly plan on learning a lot. Let's put it this way. All right, so I guess let's start out. I'm always big on background and instead of just jumping into something. So Nick or Peter, if you want to talk about what IoT is, maybe it starts, you know, my my first memories are listening to Leo Laporte on Floss talking about things like Arduinos and I know Raspberry Pis is probably one of the more commonly discussed pieces of hardware used with IoT. I always started thinking about PIE, not PI, made me hungry. But anyway, just a little background of maybe where IoT started and and where it's headed and how JavaScript fits in with that. Yeah, Steve, what you just said actually reminded me of the first time I told that I, I went to some conference and, and won a Raspberry Pi single board computer at that at that conference. And I texted my wife or I, I called her and told her, I was like, hey, I won a Raspberry Pi at this conference. She's like, that's interesting, cool, neat. And I come home and show her the little single board computer. She's like, I thought you were actually bringing me a Raspberry Pi to just from this random conference. That was a weird prize, but hey, we're going to enjoy it. And so I think that's a common point of confusion if you will bring that up for sure. <laughs> Thank you to our studio audience there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, I, I agree. The the starting point for a lot of people when they think about IoT, it is a lot of like the maybe the maker side of it in terms of like Arduino, Raspberry Pi, the ESP, the Espressive boards these days, which are the ESP8266, ESP32, and the various ranges that come from that. And a lot of those ladder boards are being integrated into a lot more of these common off-the-shelf internet connected things. I guess my first experience with if what I consider an IoT device was actually the Pebble smartwatch when I'm going to date myself a little bit when I was in college when it first came out on Kickstarter and I backed the original Kickstarter for the Pebble, like e-paper, e-ink. I don't remember what the official brand that they used. I forget which one's the copyright, which one's the technology. Was um, it Flintstones? No. Flintstones, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that was like, you could program this internet-connected device that was on my wrist. Um, and it got me super into wearables. I wasn't studying programming at all in college. I was actually studying psychology. I ended up doing programming as a hobby and finding out that I can make a career out of it. And ever since then, I've been finding ways to kind of put JavaScript on things and make really interesting experiences out of it. Because the Pebble at one point actually ran JavaScript on it or a form of it uh, called JerryScript, uh, which came out of Samsung. And maybe Peter has a bit more history around his experience with it uh, coming from semiconductors and other embedded areas. You could buy one on Amazon, actually. I'm looking at it right now. The Pebbles. Pebble smartwatch. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, they were originally they were bought by Fitbit at one point when they just couldn't make the independent business work. And then now Fitbit's owned by getting bought by Google or has officially been bought by Google. And so a lot of the you can see the design and some of the kind of characteristics of Pebble in some of the newer Fitbit devices and some of the developer runtimes, which were some of the best parts about working with it, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, Pebble had a Pebble actually came out of this was just up the street here where, uh, where they started that effort. And uh, the, the folks who created that had a really beautiful kind of idea that this was an open device that that people could make their own and uh i'm, I'm actually I thrilled to kind of learn that nick nick got started on on something like that because I, I think that's what's really interesting about iot iot i mean every device in our world has like a computer in it yeah, i mean I, I always come back to light bulbs as the classic example but door locks and refrigerators and uh, i mean you name it anything that has electricity going to it kind of is getting a microcontroller in it. And what's annoying about that, or frustrating maybe, from my perspective, is that those are all kind of black box devices that we can't program. So, you know, when you're, when you're a software engineer and you look at a door lock that you know has a little computer in it, all you think is, I could make this better. 
and you're kind of stopped because the device is is completely sealed and, and you can't you can't tweak the software and that limits so much and I, I think all of us have ideas about um, you know how IOT should be um, but we're kind of stopped from exploring that and I think JavaScript is really kind of the key to unlocking that and, and really kind of kind of creating more malleable IOT if you will. Yeah. So, I mean does JavaScript does have a long history on devices, controlling devices even back to like when Node.js became a thing in itself. And if folks are familiar with like Node serial port and that project from Chris Williams which was eventually like what became or it was used to build on become Johnny 5 and that project to control things like Arduinos, Raspberry Pis, all these embedded devices with a host computer usually over using Fermata as the protocol to communicate with those devices over USB or even Bluetooth and expanded and expanded. And Johnny 5 is still a great place to start today. And often I generally call it, and I think a lot of people call it jQuery for hardware. Um, because it gives you a single API to work with all sorts of peripherals and sensors and all sorts of things and even running on some devices itself, depending on the, the hardware that's available to it and operating system that's available too. So it's amazing it's gone back even that far to be to allow you to control things. And then it's, you know, we've made leaps and bounds since then to allow you to actually embed full JavaScript engines onto really, really resource-constrained devices that can be run off of batteries and I'm not sure coin cell just yet uh, for a long time, but, you know, it's getting there and you can do really interesting things with it. So I wanted to ask about that actually specifically. So obviously using JavaScript as the programming language has this huge advantage of, you know, so many people just knowing that programming language. I think probably more people know JavaScript programming than any other programming language out there, thanks to the web and thanks to the openness of the web and the ubiquitousness of the web, ubiquity of the web. But I'm also thinking that JavaScript is is kind of a problematic choice, I guess, because, you know, as you mentioned, one of the defining aspects of all these microcontrollers in all these devices is that they are fairly constrained. You know, they're they have not a lot of memory. They need to be really cheap. So they and so they they usually they usually don't have lots of memory. They're usually fairly constrained in terms of their processing power and various other restrictions. And JavaScript kind of was designed for not for that. <laughs> Let's put it this way: it's it's a it's it's an interpreted programming language rather than being compiled, which means that you you need to have an engine installed on that device. You can't just put in the, you know, uh, the output, the output of a compiler. It, it's, it's really dynamic, which means that a lot of the optimizations that are associated with static programming languages are not really possible. It uses GC and it's really, really, let's put it like that, fast and loose with how it uses memory. It tends to to create to allocate a lot of objects all the time uh, and stuff like that. And the list goes on and on. So I'm just wondering, how do you effectively get JavaScript on all of these devices and why you wouldn't choose some other programming language, which might certainly won't be as popular 
but would be a lot more appropriate maybe for such constrained environments. I don't know, maybe, well, obviously C is everywhere, but maybe modern languages like Rust or something like that. That was kind of a long-winded question. So <laughs> I'll, I'll let Peter take <laughs> that one. Peter Scott, yeah. Yeah. There, there was a lot there, Nick. Do you want me to try this? <laughs> yeah, go for it. I think you have the best sort of history around that too, and especially sure. if you're an implementer. Sure. So, um, Dan, you, you've got a lot there. I'm going to back up and try to, to cover some of it, and you um, feel free to jump in and tell me what I missed. So, you got to start with the engine, and you know, modern web JavaScript engines like V8 and JavaScript Core are designed to be ridiculously fast. They're frighteningly good at it. And uh, the techniques that they've developed to achieve that, I mean, literally have pushed computer science forward uh, in the last decade. It's incredible. And so that gives JavaScript the reputation of being big and heavy. But scripting languages have been used on small devices forever. Smalltalk being kind of the classic example ran on devices that, you know, make a lot of IO, uh, on much less powerful devices than, than IoT products today. And JavaScript isn't that different from, from those kind of classic scripting languages. So, so we made our own here at Modable, uh, we made our own JavaScript engine. It's called XS. And XS stands for extra small. And uh, rather than optimizing for performance, our first order bit, our high order optimization is for size to run on microcontrollers. That refers to the size of the engine itself. Uh, that refers to the memory footprint. And um, that really changes how you, how you build an engine. And so our engine doesn't look anything like V8, for example, although it can run basically the same scripts. I apologize for interrupting you, Peter, because it's just so interesting. So just to clarify, you build your own JavaScript engine from scratch, from the bottom up? Yeah, I, I should. When you say you, it's in the in the broad sense. The main force uh, behind XS is uh, one of my colleagues and longtime friend named Patrick Soquet, who works uh, out in the Belgian countryside very quietly creating uh, brilliant optimizations to uh, JavaScript engines. So when you say JavaScript, do you mean literal JavaScript or do you mean ES20XDX? Yeah, we mean, well, so we mean the same JavaScript programming language that you find in your web browsers. Um, and so currently that is formally defined as ECMAScript 2022, the standard that comes from TC39. How um, can so you fit a language that large on anything. Yeah, it's uh, it's really super doable. You just have to approach it from a different perspective. The uh, our full engine will fit in less than uh, a megabyte of space in Flash ROM, which is very practical on uh, most microcontrollers today. And uh, we do some really cool tricks. We've actually run it on uh, and on chips that have as little as 256k of storage for code. And we do that with this 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 really slick optimization we developed, where you're familiar with tree shaking, where you can basically have a, a web packager take out the parts of libraries you don't use, right? So you're, what you deliver is smaller. We basically do tree shaking for the JavaScript engine. So when you write your code as an option, we'll analyze your code to see which features of the language you use, and then we'll take out the parts of the JavaScript engine you don't use. And so you basically get an engine that's custom tailored to exactly what your code uses. And so that can be much, much smaller. What you're describing is just so cool. Uh, I you know, can't help really thinking about the implications. So basically, I could take one of the tools out there like Babel or whatever that can transform 
modern JavaScript into quote unquote older JavaScript or, you know, even ES5 and then leverage that in order to make your engine smaller? Yeah, you could do that. That would absolutely work. It's an interesting idea. I think you, at some point, you may generate more bytecode than you save in engine size. Um, oh, but yeah, that, yeah. That, I mean, it's a trade-off. You'd have to measure it. But uh, but yeah, no, you could totally do it. But it's it's been really neat because for us because it means as the JavaScript language gets bigger, right? Like if you don't use atomics in your code, and and honestly, most people don't use atomics in their code, then you don't pay a price for having that on the device. Wait, right. what and if you atomics? use it, and if you use it, yeah, see, been, been for like five years. <laughs> I, thought, I thought the whole point of JavaScript was it runs on a single thread. No, so at, atomics, atomics. atomics let you synchronize between uh, web workers, as it were. Oh, okay. So you're not just implementing JavaScript, you're implementing WhatWig and... No, we don't do WhatWig. Uh, not we, really. We pull in, yeah. uh, because... because the browser is huge, and everybody who's tried to do browser-like things on on an embedded device has, has just flailed out. And so, we, you know, we'll pull bits and pieces from WhatWig where it makes sense, uh, where we can do that well. But uh, but it, it's really it's really straight up JavaScript. Yeah, and there are workers on in the modelable engine as well, so you can have sort of background processes as workers, which is why things like Atomics are useful when needed, but not necessarily out of the box, as Peter was saying. I think one of the interesting things too is some parts of the language become a bit more important to know when to use on Modable or XS, excuse me, versus like when we usually do in the browser. So I, I know a lot of people, you know, do default to let in a lot of ways um, for like var let const um, variable declaration. Whereas I think const actually has a key benefit in XS versus maybe what it would be in the browser. Peter can correct me on that if, if I'm misspeaking. No, it's perfectly correct. And so that, that kind of uh, segues into answering another one of Dan's, Dan's questions, which is about memory. And so uh, one, of the, uh, one of the techniques we use a lot is to basically put objects in ROM rather than RAM. So on a typical microcontroller, you might have an order of magnitude more flash storage space, ROM space, we call it, than you have RAM. And, and that's for cost reasons, basically. Flash memory is really inexpensive. And so we, uh, we have some techniques that basically let you take uh, JavaScript objects that don't change and store them in flash and keep them in flash for their entire lifetime so that they, uh, they never come through RAM. And that saves uh, a ton of memory. Are you changing the way that const works so that it actually makes objects into constants rather than variables? No, we don't change the semantics of the language at all. But if you assign a string to a const, a string is immutable, right? String, strings in JavaScript never change, and it's assigned well, to a const. They're immutable whether you mark them as var, let, or const. Strings are always immutable anyway. Right, but if they're assigned to a const, both the string and the variable that it's assigned to can never change. And then that allows you to make some optimizations. This is super cool what you're describing. But if I'm, again, I, I can't help it. The tech in uh-huh. me is, you know, I, I it just wants to ask ever more questions about it. So if we're thinking about V8 for comparison for a minute, so V8 actually, the engine actually has in it like an interpreter and a compiler and a smarter compiler. Again, having to do with that whole uh, emphasis on performance. Uh, it, it, in order to make the startup time as fast as possible, it starts by interpreting. 
but then it does a little bit of compiling in the background. And then if identify certain pieces of code as being really hot, it actually uses an optimizing compiler for them. Are you doing anything sort of similar with the purpose of just reducing the size of the of the code stored or is it just an interpreter? Do you get it into bytecode form or do you just in, interpret the actual raw source code all the time? Like, how do you do? <laughs> what do you do and how yeah. do you do it? Yeah, great questions. It's completely different from V8. That's that's for sure. We do a couple things. One is that we, uh, so we, we compile to bytecode for sure. So we, we can run eval, we can parse JavaScript on the device, but we prefer not to. So we pre-compile the JavaScript typically on your computer into bytecode. And then we have this option we call preload, which um, actually can begin to execute your JavaScript on the computer before it deploys to the device. And this, this is a little tricky and bizarre, but uh, actually in, pract- in practice turns out to be pretty easy to use. So if you think about it in JavaScript, when you declare a class, that's not static, that's dynamic. It actually executes bytecode to define the class. And that's because you can say class extends like some variable name and that variable name can change. And so we can execute that with some constraints, but we can execute that at build time, basically before we deploy to the device and create the class object on the computer and burn it into ROM. That does a few things. One, it means that the bytecode to build the class never gets deployed to the device. So it just evaporates into space. What you're left with is the result, which is the object, which is the class. It means that class can live 100% in Flash. So it's never copied into RAM. So super, uh, super lightweight. And third, because it's already executed, there's no time, literally zero overhead to create that class when you boot up on the device. So you start up much faster. And so all of this gives us like instant, near instant on where we can be uh, from the time a microcontroller gets powered up to the time we're executing your, your scripts can be measured in like single digit milliseconds on a lot of microcontrollers, which is, which is crazy. We don't do, we don't have a JIT. We don't try on the device to compile your bytecode to, to native code. But we have another escape hatch, which is if you, in the course of development, see that your JavaScript code, you know, some particular function's really hot and it, it doesn't make sense for that to stay in JavaScript, you can recode that in C. And we do that in embedded projects. You know, it's a tiny fraction of functions, maybe, I mean, certainly well under, uh, well under 1%, but, you know, there's a handful of places that are critical. And so because it's embedded, we can fall back to native code when we need to for a function. And the, uh, the XS engine kind of makes switching between C and, and JavaScript really clean and easy to do. That should be pretty easy. I mean, C is one of those languages that's real easy to pick up and learn on a very whim, forgiving, right? right? Very forgiving. Yeah. <laughs> Not very forgiving, but very small. So the, the dry humor is very dry for those listening yeah. in to the mind voice. <laughs> yeah, uh, I do. I do have to ask then. So this first, of all, this sounds amazing. It is amazing. Where you know, on which devices will I can I find it? Is is XS something that I can put on a device? Does it does it come does it need to come built into the, the device? How do I get to use this this magic? Yeah, so it's so, um Yeah. Go ahead, Peter. I'll start that and then Nick, I'll hand it off to you because because uh, you're you're you've you've made it so much better. So XS is open source and the mo- whole open modable SDK is open source. You can just grab it off of uh, GitHub and it 
it's, we've got ports for a bunch of different microcontrollers, the Espressif ones, Raspberry Pis, uh, uh, Raspberry Pico, excuse me, their little microcontroller, and a bunch uh, of ARM based devices. And, you know, we, we even have people in our ecosystem who are uh, doing their own ports of it to, to other silicon. So pretty straightforward uh, to grab. The, um, the initial setup uh, for anything with embedded is always like just the biggest headache in the world. Uh, and that's something that that's, you know, not been as, as easy as it could be. And uh, Nick has actually recently uh, done some really fantastic work to kind of simplify that, that getting started experience. So I'll, I'll turn over to you, Nick. Yeah, so the I was working with Monable a bit. I, I met Peter at TC53 from getting invited as a I'm an invited expert from his experience working on the Tesla open source project many years ago. And uh, for those that remember that as an embedded a device, uh, open source hardware device that you could run uh, Node.js and, and hardware code on. And met Peter, learned about Monable, started playing with it and realizing coming from web dev experience and, and kind of like the NPM ecosystem, a bunch of that type of stuff, how kind of tedious it is to get set up. And for someone who also does a lot of workshops and wants to teach other people how to do this, it would most of the workshop would be setting stuff up and making sure everything was running before they got to go and run any code anywhere. So I put a little effort into automating the stuff because documentation is there. And for like the model documentation is in part of the repo and you can read through it and it's step by step. It answers pretty much everything you need to do. So I went and said, all right, well, let me see if I can program something around it. And so I created a CLI called XS Dev, And that allows you to not only set up the model SDK and all the tooling on your computer, but also pulls down the adjacent tooling needed to build uh, your projects for the various devices you're using, either the Pico, the ESP32, ESP8266, as well as other adjacent tools. Like there's a font tool, which is pretty actually really interesting part of the model SDK where you can have custom fonts to use on uh, device screens and touch screens and all that type of stuff. And so there's these workflows built into it as well as being able to bootstrap or initialize new projects and then use like a template from the model SDK to say, okay, I want a project that has Wi-Fi integration. So I can just get everything set up with like XSDev init project name and then pick a template. And then working on pulling in more things like third-party scripts because that's not something that's necessarily built into the way modable projects work today. And so something Peter and I have been discussing, I've also been discussing with uh, Donovan Buck, who's another member of TC53 and has another project called J5E, which is Johnny5 embedded um, and is also a maintainer of Johnny5. And so we've been working on seeing how do we make this a really good experience for JavaScript developers as well as, you know, adventurous embedded developers who want to get more into that ecosystem and maybe open up the world of NPM and some of those other things into embedded devices and allow you to share code and um, still have the really nice optimized experience um, that you can do today. So with this name of XS that you're using, you're talking about XS Dev, have you ever thought of naming something like Existential? <laughs> just, a, just a thought. Yeah, so uh, every time we wonder, is JavaScript the right answer for this? And it's like, yeah, yeah, we're doing pretty good there. You mentioned uh, TC53. Most people who know about JavaScript and ECMAScript and ECMA uh, know, kind of heard about TC39, which is the, the committee that's in charge of the evolution or, according to AJ, the regression <laughs> of the JavaScript programming language or the inflation, whatever, AJ, you decide. But what is TC53? So TC53 is the Sanders group 
the ECMAS standards group for defining how JavaScript APIs on embedded devices. So not just IoT, but embedded environments in general. And so Peter is the chair of TC53, and it's been going on for three or four years now, Peter? Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah. Um, yeah we... And so we're not trying to add new features to the language. We're just trying to define, again, a standard for other people to implement on their various environments and moddable or XS really being one of the first environments to meet that standard. And there's one one published uh, version of uh, ECMA 419, which is the actual uh, specification. So this confuses me a little bit because uh, before, Peter, you said that you were able to effectively implement the entire ES2021 standard into your XS engine. But now, so if, if you're just able to implement the entirety of ECMAScript as defined by TC39, why do we need another standards body? Or, or wouldn't it be better for you guys to sit in on the TC39 maybe and tell them, hey, you are looking to add this feature or that feature into the language, but that really doesn't play nice with embedded environments. Maybe you should reconsider. Yep. Great question. So maybe a, a little bit of the evolution of TC53 or how it kind of came to be is is helpful here. So God, it was a while ago now, a few years back, Patrick Soke and I were asked by Brendan Ike, the guy who created JavaScript, to come and present what we were doing at TC39. Because he was like, this is really cool. Like, it's insane that you have JavaScript running on these little devices and the committee should understand that. And we, uh, so Patrick and I went, we were, you know, thrilled and terrified to be uh, invited, but we went and did the talk and the, the committee was very nice, uh, despite our fears. Um, it, was, it was really fun in, in retrospect. But, um, you know, at the end, we sort of closed by saying, look, the reason we're here is we think JavaScript is awesome. It's really good on embedded devices. And, um, you know, we just kind of want to encourage you guys to keep it that way. And <laughs> there was kind of a stony silence in the room. And then uh, one guy who has since become a friend leaned back in his chair and he said, well, we don't know anything about that. And then he paused and he goes, but you guys seem to know something about that. Why don't you join us and help with that? And so we did, which, which, so we, we consider Modable's presence at TC39 just to be to kind of make sure that the language stays viable for small devices. But the second part of that is, you know, JavaScript, ECMAScript does not define anything other than kind of compute stuff. You know, all the, uh, AJ, like to your question, you know, all the, the stuff about like, how do you make a web page, for example, or how do you talk to a WebSocket server? That all comes out of what HG, for example, right? So totally different standards body. And if you look at all these different domains where JavaScript is used, there's different groups of people who are defining the APIs for that. So the language committee sticks to the core of the language, which I think is great. And then there's domain expertise making different standards for APIs that build on the language. And so TC53 was set up to do just that for IoT. And uh, kind of based on some, some interesting provocative questions by or observations by Rick Waldron, who was one of the people behind J5, uh, Johnny5, we focused the initial work on I.O. So how do you talk to IoT hardware, right? How do you read a button? How do you, um, how do you turn on an LED? How do you talk to a sensor? This is all the stuff that's kind of roughly analogous to what you do in Arduino. But instead of doing it in C, we want to do it in JavaScript. We want to do it in a standard way, a vendor-neutral way. And so TC53 kind of complements and builds on what TC39 does. And, and occasionally we do kind of come back and say, hey, 
we're working on this, um, or we see a we see a challenge here, or we see a need here, uh, and so so we we you know being part of ECMA, that's a really easy conversation to have. So that that's kind of how how TC fifty three uh, separates itself from TC thirty nine. So I'm here with uh, JD from Raygun. JD, we've been talking quite a bit lately about Core Web Vitals and keeping track of the performance of your applications. And one of the hard things is is that you kind of get this aggregated data from Google that changes over time, but it's got this lag on it. And I, I think we actually had some folks from Raygun where we were talking about, in particular, this problem and having some some way of getting faster feedback on this kind of a thing. Yeah, 100%. I mean, Google's official guidance is that you should be looking for a RUM tool and not relying on snapshotted data. So Raygun's RUM tool will collect all your core web vitals and Last time I checked, I think we were at about four to five seconds lag on ingesting data. So pretty close to real time on, wow. on how you're performing there. Um, but yeah, yeah, we have first class support in our real user monitoring product. Yeah, real user monitoring means that each request that comes in, each track that people follow, that's what gets tracked. And so you know your numbers right away. Yeah, that's right. Actual data from actual users. It's so much more valuable than synthetic data. Um, and you also collect it across the entire user base. So you can see, like, who are my 1%, you know, most disenfranchised users who experience the worst sort of performance? And, you know, between between us, Chuck, I'm stoked that Google's doing this because as a user of software, I want my software to go fast. And I'm really glad they're creating a business incentive for all of us to work on the performance of our software. Yep, absolutely. So folks, if you want a real user monitoring tool that'll keep you on top of your core web vitals, go check out raygun.com and you can actually just sign up for a free trial. Can you give a concrete example of one of the things that you've worked on specifically in in that uh, committee? In TC53? Yes, yes, please. Yeah, Nick, you want to take that? You're... Sure. I mean, so the, as Peter was saying, the original specification of the original draft that was published last year was focused on how do you talk to sensors? How do you talk to different sockets? So the hello world of a lot of hardware projects is usually like hello blinky um, or hello blink. And just like, how do I make a, a light turn on? Because it's a great bit of feedback uh, in the same way that you have console feedback when you initially start with some sort of programming language. And so with the specification for, for ECMA 419, you can, there's a class that you can use. And it's all class-based and there's the specification talks about like why classes, why some of the ways that we talked with events and event registration and emitting. And you can tell like, here's my class, here's the port I want to talk to, which is usually some type of pin that you're talking to on a device. And that pin, or even could be like an embedded LED on the device itself that is, you know, hooked up to some pin number. And then you can tell it like, here, I want you to have this value. If it's analog or if it's digital, you say, all right, one or zero, one or zero. And then I'm blinking now. And it's the very bare metal as much as possible. So people can build greater abstractions on top of it. So like I was saying before, J5E or Johnny5 Embedded is building on top of ECMA 419 to provide a little bit more I'll say intuitive to people familiar with things like jQuery or Johnny Five, like the the full version. So you can just have built-in blink methods, and you can have ways of adding animations to LEDs and all that type of stuff. So that's just like one example of how you can take the originations of in the specification for ECMA four and nine and build on top of it yourself. And some of the more recent conversations that are near and dear to the work I like to do, and especially with IoT, is how do you talk to? How do you hook up to Wi-Fi? How do you 
talk to the wider internet and all these different protocols that are available to IoT devices like MQTT, Peter brought up WebSockets. There are all these sort of ways you can talk over UDP or TCP directly, and those aren't necessarily built into JavaScript the language, but you need to find some way for people to implement that on their various environments because, you know, ESP8266 has a different way of doing it than the ESP32 versus like the new Pico W just came out, which might have its own different way of talking to the radios that it has for starting to talk to sockets for Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and all all those sort of things. So it seems to me that you're dealing with lots and lots of APIs and, and means to interface with various external devices and communication protocols and whatnot. It kind of brings to mind, I don't know if uh, there's any potential overlap between the two, but it kind of reminds me of a conversation that we had with uh, Thomas uh, Steiner from Google about their project Fugu, which uh, I guess the constraints are very, very different, but it seems like there's a certain amount of similarity in the objectives of getting JavaScript to talk to stuff. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting point. So for folks who don't know, to make sure that I'm talking about the same thing as you are, Dan, uh, Project Fugu is kind of like Google's initiative to add JavaScript APIs to the browser that can talk to different different capabilities on the on the computer. And so they, for example, they have a Bluetooth API in JavaScript. They have a web USB. They have a serial API. And there, there is some overlap. And, you know, the part of what TC53 has been thinking long and hard about is how do we kind of coexist with those things in a, in a nice way? And so, like, the, the serial one is a good example. We, uh, in, I mean, first, you have to remember that a computer has, if you say, like, a thousand times more memory and horsepower than a typical embedded device, you're, you're modestly understating it. And so... The, the design point is so different between these two things. You can't just say, hey, we'll do what Google's doing. That'll work perfectly. We can't emulate the web and run well on these devices. So, of course, we have, uh, as part of the work we did, we have in, in ECMA 419, we have a serial port uh, or a serial class. And conceptually, it's it's functionally equivalent to what, what Google's doing, but it's much lower level, much more sensitive to buffering, much lighter weight in terms of the, 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 the way that you use it. But we did things like where to, to ease kind of developers' mental burden, we, where we could, where there were similar functions or similar properties, we chose the same name. So we just followed Google and used their names so that, you know, you didn't have the same concept go by by different strings and be unnecessarily confusing. And then we also have done, uh, I don't know where it's published, but I, I know we, we wrote it. We actually did a, um, a wrapper of the ECMA 419 implementation that emulates a big chunk of the Google implementation from Project Fugu. So that if you have the memory and the CPU and you want compatibility at the API level, you can, you can have that. But if you want to work closer to the metal, you can do that. And that, that's a pattern we've been following um, with work in second edition. So, so Nick and I both mentioned network protocols like WebSockets. And so second edition will include a WebSocket class, which is ridiculously efficient and low level. I'm, actually, I'm very happy with how it's coming together. But of course, it's a new API for doing WebSockets. And web developers know, know the uh, what HG, HTML5 WebSocket interface. 
And so we did an implementation of the WhatHG uh, WebSocket using the ECMA 419 WebSocket. And again, it uses a bit more memory. It uses a bit more horsepower. But that's a trade-off you can make if you, you want the API compatibility. And so we're really trying to build things in a way that is, that's aware of the web, that creates a path to the web, but that doesn't burden people who are concerned with making the most efficient possible embedded device that they can. And as consumers, as, as, as users and purchasers of those products, we should love that because when those devices are lighter, they're also less expensive. And so when you get to mass market stuff, these things really matter. And so, you know, when people say, oh, let's just add like, you know, a ton of RAM and a ton of storage, you know, you add five bucks to the cost of goods, which adds 20 bucks to the cost at retail. And all of a sudden people are like, this product is ridiculously expensive. Who's the fool who made it? And so you really have to kind of kind of look at both sides of this. And I'm really happy with the balance that we found in uh, TC53 with input from people like Nick and Donovan, who uh, who have a very real world uh, experience on the web. One of my favorite implementations that has happened in, in recent discussions at TC53 has been the implementation of the Fetch API on top of these this draft that is being put together for all the networking protocols. So, you know, the underlying like Wi-Fi or not Wi-Fi connection, but the network requests and and TCP and then HTTP requests. So build on top of those bases, I think it was Patrick and, and Peter have put together the actual fetch implementations. So now, you know, when we have fetch on these embedded devices, we have fetch on all these server server environments, we have fetch in the browser, like it's full stack fetch everywhere now if you choose to opt into that API and have some sort of solid API documentation. If you're just like, all right, use fetch to talk to my remote service, you can kind of do that in all these different environments now, which I think is pretty great. So if I can take it in a practical direction for a minute. So I, I can think of two really practical scenarios. Well, I'll call them practical. One is I'm, I have this idea. I'm going to do a Kickstarter. I'm thinking, hey, it'll be great if I can implement this. Really, I have this great idea for an IoT device. It would be awesome if I can develop it in, in JavaScript instead of having to learn and use some other programming language. So, you know, how do I go about it if that's my use case? The other one is, hey, I'm a hobbyist. I know JavaScript. I have lots of smart devices at home. I have, you know, various ideas about how some of them could work better. How can I start using my JavaScript knowledge to be dangerous? So, you know, pick which one you want to answer first. But, you know. Nick, why don't you take the, the second part? It, that yeah. seems like uh, something you do. And then uh, maybe I can uh, follow that up with, with kind of the more product-specific parts. Yeah, I think you definitely have more experience on the product side of things. Yeah, I mean, that, again, I come from the hobbyist side for sure. I've been tinkering with JavaScript on devices. And one thing I talked about at the JSCon Budapest talk, and which is now online, uh, is I built like my own clapper, if people remember that product. So like clap on, clap off, except it was IoT rather than just being plugged straight into the wall. So I had had it hooked up to HomeKit, various other integrations, but it also just talked on my local network. And that felt really good to be able to take, and I have since implemented it with XS versus on the Tesla, which was the original environment. And I also have an on-air light and things. So, you know, there are places you can get these boards. Modable themselves have these dev kits you can use as well. But, you know, you can buy an ESP8266 that has Wi-Fi connections or Wi-Fi uh, capabilities on it for a couple bucks. And they've developed them boards from SparkFun, Adafruit, MicroCenter, all sorts of places, Amazon even. And you can, again, we talked about XS Dev earlier, plug it into your computer, start running XS Dev, even prototype on 
your computer without running on a device through some of the simulators that Modable provides. But so you can just kind of get some quicker feedback before even shipping to the device and starting to get the full peripheral and, and finally deploying it out to the real world. So well, talk about um, the clapper, that brings back some memories. Clap oh, on, yeah. clap off. It delighted my wife when she first got to do that. <laughs> and then we moved and we had all different sort of situations to set that up again. But yeah, it, it's it's nice how accessible it can be. I think the biggest hard, the hardest part with a lot of hobbyist stuff with hardware is ordering the stuff and waiting for it to arrive. And I think being able to prototype out of the box on your local machine, and there's even like a web simulator as well, which is pretty awesome that with compiling the the excess and all that type of stuff towards Wasm and having it execute in the browser. And so there's all these sort of places to just get your feet wet before even you have hardware locally and sort of experiment with some of these APIs and then deploy to an actual device and get in, into that. And you don't even have to know how to solder or anything. I, I don't solder really any of my projects. I just put them on dev breadboards and then stick them to a wall or wherever I'm putting them. Um, and that's pretty much how I get started. Yeah, and I guess Peter, if you can talk a bit more about the the product side of things. Yeah, thanks. I mean, the the hobbyist side kind of leads directly into uh, into the product side. I mean, so many products start out as an idea; they start out with as an experiment. And one of the great things about, especially the ESP thirty two ecosystem, which is uh, one of the microcontrollers that that we that we really like is as Nick mentioned you can get a you can get a board for as little as a couple bucks but um but you also can spend like you know 100 bucks and get one with a really nice e-paper screen or 60 bucks and get one with a really nice screen and an accelerometer and um, you know a speaker and so there's there's literally hundreds of different ESP32 boards these days and so you can often just find one that's a good starting point for your product and kind of just start programming those things in JavaScript. And, you know, we've even had like designers um, at companies um, go out and order like uh, order our dev kit and use it to, to prototype some a UI interaction in JavaScript um, directly on the device just to kind of get a feel for how that would be. And so, um, so, you yeah, know, people can grab a dev board, start building and prove out a concept, get get a get a demo working. The cool thing is that the when you're doing that in in the model SDK, you're doing that with JavaScript, that kind of experimental code just migrates directly into production code, right? And so you don't you don't like hand that off to somebody to recode in C who then tells you that they can't possibly do what you did in JavaScript because it's C, don't you understand? But there's some other really neat things like we have a, a customer who's delivering a battery powered product on a on an ARM processor. And it was going to take them, it took them six months to get the first boards back. But we built the entire product on an ESP32 for them. And it worked and we could test it. We could, you know, tweak the UI. We could do everything they needed. Then we got the boards back. We were able to, to bring up the same software, you know, in a matter of days. And that was thanks to standards. That's because the JavaScript language was the same. That's because the APIs to talk to the hardware were the same. And that may not seem like a big deal coming from the web where interoperability is the norm, but in, in embedded, each manufacturer has their own APIs for how to talk to everything. And so just because you can turn on a light or read a button or write to serial or talk to a sensor on one part, doesn't mean you can do it on another. Like you basically have to rewrite all that code. And so one of the really cool things that people are going to get from the standards work that we're doing in TC53 is that they're going to get portability out of their embedded code that they've never had before, that they can literally move their JavaScript code across processor architectures and get 
get the same results. And that that's game changing where people can get locked into a given silicon provider for uh, for years or decades um, or can have to halt production because of supply chain issues and they can't get apart for 18 months. And so portability really changes things from uh, from a development perspective for, for firmware and, and the standardization work that we're doing is is really what makes that possible. That's amazing. And and keeping up with my practical questions, how do you debug? I mean, debugging is pretty great, actually, and compared to some of my past experience trying to debug embedded devices, given that the model SDK comes with a GUI debugger out of the box. So when you deploy or push code out to a device using the modable tooling or XS dev built on top of the modable tooling. In the debug mode, it'll actually just pop up the debugger right away and allow you to start tracing memory profiles and network usage and all sorts of you know statistics and have a console to work against as well. Um, it's not necessarily like you're going to, I think, put instructions back to, the, you're not communicating with the device, it's just communicating with you. And so you can start looking at like, you know, put your debugger in if you want to do it that way, or just start putting out traces as the API on in the modable um, environment or on access versus console.log. But same thing, sort of, you just set out some logging and start monitoring the feedback there and seeing like, all right, what's going on? I, I will sometimes log like before I've connected to a Wi-Fi device, after I've connected to a Wi-Fi device, during various states of the connection periods or, or of the application that's running. And although I haven't done too much uh, debugging to a screen yet necessarily, as Peter was saying, buy some devices that have touchscreens or just regular like e-paper or like LCD sort of screens. And uh, so there's probably some logging and, and debugging you can probably do there too. So that gets me to another practical question that I've never understood or seen is we're talking about installing, you know, running JavaScript on a little Raspberry Pi or Arduino or whatever. How do you do that practically? What are you doing? Are you connecting the the device to a computer and there's a UI that comes up or some sort of IDE that you can code in? Or where are you actually writing this code and how is it so that it's on your IoT device? Because I'm assuming you're not connecting a monitor to your Raspberry Pi and and a keyboard and encoding directly on it or something like that, right? No, thank goodness. Yeah, or or you you can use your own development environment. I use Vim, so I just write my programs in Vim and then run one of the commands uh, for. If you're using Modable directly, you can use it's MC config, and I just, or if you're using uh, my CLI, it's just XS Dev run, and then it'll run the local project uh, that you have onto the device, and you can specify which either on the debugger or the local simulator, or you can specify a device targets. And I connect over USB. So it's it's connected over USB to my computer. And then I can list out the various uh, devices connected to my computer using XS Dev list, which just kind of abstracts over all of the individual tools that will display all the connected devices you have that will be a target for either the Espressive drivers or the Raspberry Pi Pico in the past for Tesla, that was kind of a, a big thing. We You can actually deploy wirelessly after you've connected it once and, and given the device your SSH key, like your public key, then you could deploy wirelessly on your local network. Um, and that would allow you to just have devices out in the field and then push new code out to it um, as long as it was connected to your same Wi-Fi and was discoverable. There are ways to do over-the-air stuff with the Modable SDK. I've seen some examples. I've never tried it myself. And I'm not sure how much Peter suggests folks doing that right now, at least. So, so you're copying the code from a 
base level standpoint here, Sarah, are you copying the code to your computer, writing it, and then pushing it back sort of like the old school FTP to a web server type of thing? Or are you, you're actually accessing the code directly on your on your device? So as Peter was saying earlier, the the tooling that model provides, at least for um, XS, is that it will compile your code locally and then turn it into bytecode and, 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 and then deploy it over USB, usually um, serial, to to the device and then start running that program. So it'll flash it over is usually kind of the term for a lot of the, the hardware programming. Am I missing anything there, Peter? So then, so then you're programming like against a simulator on your computer to see how it would run on there? Yeah, you can. Like, sort of- Depending on like what you're using, there are certain simulator environments for having a screen or having buttons. And I think they're slowly adding more and more simulators to allow you to kind of prototype more peripherals available to it or even some of the networking APIs um, hooking into the native operating system APIs for certain like HTTP requests and things like that. Mm-hmm. This really reminds me of, uh, you know, some of the experiences that we discussed with people talking about uh, developing using JavaScript for various cloud-based platforms, like uh, various types of uh, workers and uh, edge computing and stuff like that, where you run things in a local environment, which simulates the, the target environment. And then when you think you're ready, you kind of uh, push the code, the tool pushes the code out to production for you. Just in in the case that you're describing, instead of sending it over the, the internet to some cloud-based server or whatever, you're sending it across a, a physical wire to an actual IoT device. But the end result is kind of similar. And it seems that even the debugging experience is kind of similar. Yeah, it can be. I remember just remembering back to the days of working on Pebble, they had a cloud IDE that you would use to prototype and, and it has a simulator embedded there. And then you could ship it over online to your local, it would ship it to your phone, which would then deploy it over to your watch while you were working in that environment. And that was very interesting to me. I always wished I could do it locally, but uh, I think they just had a custom environment set up. They were using Cloud9 at the time um, as like the base layer and then built on top of that to, to provide their mm programming environment with like feedback for their SDK and all that sort of stuff. Right now, they're, so one thing that's interesting that's been happening is the inclusion of TypeScript to deploy to XS as well. And so it can give you a bit more of that feedback. Some folks look, and one thing I enjoy about using TypeScript in my day-to-day work is that rather than having a full-blown IDE like you might have for something like Xcode or Android Studio and things like that, you can still choose whatever editor you want, but then having... TypeScript feedback and typings for all the different APIs and it being open source, people have contributed typings for the ECMA 419 standard and all the other sort of SDKs provided by Modable and give you that feedback and help you feel a bit more confident before pushing code over to the device and having that kind of longer feedback loop than most JavaScript developers are used to. Isn't TypeScript support just basically having the DTS files for the relevant APIs. I mean, at the end of the day, TypeScript get, gets compiled into JavaScript, and if you have full support for JavaScript, it would seem fairly straightforward then. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, yes, the devil is in the details. There's a, there's Always a couple is. of things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, there's a couple things we do that, that, that make it easier for developers. One is that somebody has to convert the TypeScript to JavaScript. And we've integrated TypeScript support into our, our build system. So when you, whether you use MC Configure, use Nix, XS Dev, 
you can just throw TypeScript files into your project, your your project, and they'll run on embedded because they'll be automatically converted. And before we added that to uh, the model SDK, we had a few hardy souls who were using TypeScript with model SDK, but everybody else just considered it, you know, an exercise left to the reader that they weren't going to tackle. At this point, I, I would based on just kind of the questions and the things that we see going on in the community, I would guess 50 or 60% of our developers are using TypeScript right now. It's crazy popular. It, it really is. It really has taken root. The other thing we do, which is a big deal, is debugging. So transformed TypeScript to JavaScript is similar, but not the same. And in the XS JavaScript engine and through the full tool chain, um, we implement support for source maps. And that means that when you're debugging your TypeScript, you see your TypeScript source code and not the transformed JavaScript. And that's one of those things that's completely magical, but behind the scenes is just a total headache. And so we're thrilled that, that developers are using it and like it, um, but it really is one of those kind of tooling things that uh, is a real commitment to maintain and, and create, but that adds uh, really great value for people because being able to debug stuff in real time versus just console log all your life is kind of a game changer. Yeah. So uh, we're really committed to TypeScript at this point because uh, it's, it's provided a lot of benefits both for our like kind of uh, open source community users, but also for our enterprise customers who are working on just huge code bases and, and really benefit from the, the static type checking that you see, uh, that you get from TypeScript. One thing that occurred to me when I mentioned the similarity that I saw with some of the cloud-based platforms and uh, serverless and stuff like that is that it seems to me that you have something of an overlap potentially with the relatively new Winter CG working group. That's the working, that's the community group that's kind of, trying to implement a web interoperable runtime for JavaScript, something that would work in edge computing and other and devices that are constrained in other ways. So since you're focusing on constrained devices and they're focusing on constrained devices, it seems to me that there's a lot of similarity or potential for similarity there. Is that something that you're also looking at? Yeah, Donovan Buck, who uh, is another member of TC53, uh, brought this up to, to the committee. And uh, actually at the, I think it's at, at the, uh, the OpenJS Foundation, I'm really bad with conference names, but at a conference recently in Austin, OpenJS uh, Donovan World. and I, OpenJS yeah. World, thank you, Nick. Donovan and I attended a talk by James Snell, um, who's, who's the driving force behind Winter CG or one of the driving forces, um, and talked with him afterwards about, uh, you know, whether there was an an openness to uh, to us getting involved. We got a really positive response, and so we're we're starting to kind of look at what that might mean. I actually put together a, a lengthy issue at, at James' request on the Winter CG GitHub, kind of outlining all the different APIs that were relevant to us from the web universe. You know, it, it's things that I mean, things they're working on as fundamental as like you know set timeout. Um, and standardizing that across environments. Things like Fetch that, that Nick mentioned. Um, and there's other things which actually are interesting for standardization that are a little bit in the future for them, but that matter to us. Uh, things like W3C sensors. You know, we work with sensors a lot. There's actually a standard API for sensors in the browser. Why not extend that uh, as part of the Winter CG effort over time? So uh, I, I think what they're doing is great. You know, I think JavaScript developers benefit when they can apply their knowledge in more places where, th where they can reuse that. And so, you know, we're, we're really interested in kind of seeing how that, uh, how that evolves. We, we definitely are bringing, just like we bring a, a perspective to TC53 about the language, a, a different perspective because our, our high order bit is 
severe resource constraints. I think that's sort of what's novel about us in uh, in winter CG engagements as well, because they are generally looking at more kind of server and computer environments. And, and even when they talk about edge, it's more like a Node.js or a Dino-powered edge device, not not a little microcontroller. But uh, but I think I think it's great what they're doing and, and happy uh, that they're open to having us uh, get involved because I think it uh, will just make uh, JavaScript programmers in general more powerful by being able to apply their knowledge in more places. That's awesome. I know that we are kind of starting to near the end of our show, but there's another thing that I wanted to ask about, at least briefly. One of the things that that simultaneously the the boon and the bane of of the JavaScript community is npm. On one hand, it you know you've got like functionality readily available to do essentially anything. On the other hand, you import the smallest bit of functionality and get the get the entire JavaScript ecosystem downloaded onto your device. So I guess that it's even more delicate in your scenario. Do you even support? NPM or some sort of a subset? How, you know, and if so, how do you bring some sort of sanity and control into it? I mean, that's that's a big point of discussion right now that Peter and I have been having, and and mostly through the kind of how Access Dev can facilitate that. Because yeah, Modable and the SDK don't have any sort of opinion necessarily around it in terms of like supporting it. You'd there's a manifest file that Modable projects have that defines like here's all the files that will be part of my project and. You kind of almost think of it as import maps in ways as well for defining like almost bare module specifiers for saying like, all right, if I import from, you know, RGB, then it's pointing at this file. And you can do that as well for things you in your node modules if you wanted to, or if a get sub module or however you want to pull stuff in. Nothing stopping you from doing that, except that the third party module itself would also need to have a manifest to define all the files that it wants to bring in for all that or all of its imports as well. So that's something J5E from Donovan again has shows a couple ways of pulling in his project to use for your projects in terms of either downloading source code directly and put it into your project and then pointing at his manifest and having the build incantations for all that type of stuff, as well as using NPM to download it and then point at the node module folder for his manifest. And so that's something we've been thinking about because, like you said, Dan, NPM is so ubiquitous. And so I was a little hesitant for depending on it for saying like this is the way to pull in third-party modules for like the XS dev workflow in, in a way because it can kind of grow and grow and grow and becomes harder to say like all right why won't this build now because someone else added a new dependency and now it's, my product's too big and so i think there's gonna be a lot of parts of education to say like all right how do we tag certain packages to say they're ready for working in this environment or that they're ecma 419 standards and, and all that type of stuff but I think there's just a lot of prototyping in that case. I, I think NPM is still big enough that and, and ubiquitous enough and still so, again, standard to a lot of ways people work in the JavaScript ecosystem and even outside of JavaScript ecosystem. I know there's like WASM packages that go through NPM as well. It's just a general registry that I think using it in that way with certain conventions can be really useful and helpful for folks. So they're not constantly repeating you know, the same code or having to use things like get submodules or bringing down and vendoring the code themselves, which is always an option, but then makes it hard to stay up to date and have the latest updates and testing and features that they may want and are used to to working with. Yeah, it's it's a tough call for sure. 
I mean, Peter's work in more production environments, and I don't know how they manage all that stuff, or if it's all just invented in-house, and they just have common patterns that they bring over to various projects. I don't know, Peter. Yeah, no, I mean, NPM is a, is a tricky beast. I mean, I think uh, the way that Donovan's using NPM and, and Nick described is basically a way to distribute libraries that work on embedded is great, but there is a huge kind of potential surprise because, of course, a lot of stuff in NPM will not work on embedded because it has dependencies that aren't there or because of its resource requirements. And so there's room for developers to kind of run into an unpleasant surprise when they when they try to use NPM in general. So we haven't uh, kind of made it easy to use NPM as part of the modable SDK because we don't feel like we have a way yet to make it safe. So people are kind of doing it ad hoc. We'd, we'd like to solve it. But, you know, Nick's got some good ideas there um, and, and, and other folks have as well. We do have in our kind of our commercial work, a bunch of clients who use modules from NPM as part of their products. And in some cases, from my perspective, a shockingly large amount of code, but it completely works for them. And so, so great. And again, that's, that's, that's a real testament to the work of TC39, that that JavaScript language that was written for Node without even a, a thought about embedded actually just runs. Because, because the language is compatible, because test 262, which is the test 262, which is the test suite for language conformance, we run on embedded the exact same tests that they run for the web. And so we really know that the language is the same at that level. And so to even be talking about NPM interoperability takes, uh, is, is a huge leap because we've gotten, we are, it says a lot about how standard we are in, uh, in what we're able to do in embedded and how that creates an on-ramp for web developers to become uh, embedded developers too. All right. So as Dan mentioned, we're going a bit along here, but before we head to picks, Peter, I wanted to give you real quick a chance to talk about Modable. I know we've talked about Modable and the Modable SDK and so on, but I was just maybe give you a chance to make, call it a shameless plug here early, talk about <laughs> Modable, who you are, what you do, that kind of stuff. Yeah, totally uh, appreciate it. I will. Uh, I'll try to keep that short. Uh, you know, we are uh, we're uh, basically a startup in uh, Silicon Valley. We uh, are novelly self-funded, so we exist because we have clients that pay us, not because we have giant investors, and that keeps us incredibly responsive to our our client base. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? Yeah. It comes with its own challenges, but it, it really keeps you. Uh, it really keeps you focused. We are incredibly committed to openness, so all the work that we do, we publish as open source. A lot of the work that we do for our clients, we publish as open source because they will say, "Oh, we need this new feature or this optimization or report to this this silicon," and and we invariably structure the deal so that we can then publish that out to the community. We consider the open source community just like another another client. We get great ideas there. We uh, we we interact with we 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 have feedback and uh, we love that. And so you know um, we're happy to engage with people both kind of on the public front and as as a business where sometimes we'll do projects as small as hey wouldn't it be great if you had this optimization in your engine and we'll do that. Other times people will show up with you know a piece of paper with a sketch of a product and you say will you build the software for us to do this uh, and by the way do you have a hard or reference design. I mean, we'll do that too. And so we love solving problems on embedded. We, we love where performance is, is key. We love where screens are involved because we think users interact better when they can see a screen. 
that shows what the device is thinking. Security is really fun, and um, low cost is 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 really probably the the greatest challenge of all, which is kind of a balance of all those those different factors. So yeah, that's that's the shameless plug. If you're uh, if you're building embedded stuff, take a look at what we're doing, and if you need a hand doing it, we're we're here to help. Yeah, the blog is also really really great too for various project ideas and, and ways that you can start putting stuff onto embedded devices. And like, I think one of the big things that every time Peter mentioned light bulbs that just made me chuckle is the actual blog post about them programming a light bulb with excess and making it, you know, controlled through their own code, uh, which is really fascinating reading, seeing some of the constraints that they ran into as well. Excellent. The con- I have to say that the concept of running JavaScript in a light bulb brings me lots of joy for some inexplicable reason. <laughs> Yeah, it gives new meaning to the term, and a light went on, doesn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. So, all right. So thank you, gentlemen, for that, pun, actually pun intended, that very en- enlightening conversation on uh, JavaScript <laughs> and IoT. So with that, we'll move to picks. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Let's start with AJ. Uh, Let's see. AJ was obviously prepared. Yeah. Well, first of all, I... Talking anytime we're going to bring up TypeScript, I want to bring up the fact that you do not need TypeScript at all to get all the benefits of having strictly typed JavaScript. JavaScript already had types before before TypeScript came along. TypeScript gives us tooling to take advantage of those types. You don't have to reinvent the wheel or create a a new language to to get good tooling around the thing that already existed. So I'm linking to the JS doc TypeScript Tartar. TypeScript starter that uh, I created because it's not, it's the, the problem is not intuitive how to do this, right? It's not intuitive that if you, you want to have the simplicity that JavaScript affords you, that you can get all the benefits that you want from, you know, strict typing, just, you know, it's, it's already, it's there. You just need the tools. I'm going to interrupt so, you for a second, AJ, and remind yeah. you that we actually had uh, Gil Tayar on episode 489 to talk about the beauty of JSDoc and how you can use JSDoc to get typing in JavaScript without TypeScript. And I still need to actually listen to that one because I wasn't on that one. Yeah, you weren't. But I, I would love to hear his tips and tricks as well because there are a couple of things that I... Because TypeScript is designed around the concept of C-sharp, there's a few things that don't quite map well to JavaScript. And so things that are really intuitive and obvious in JavaScript aren't necessarily carried yeah. over, like returning an object with functions from a function that requires kind of a non-intuitive syntax with this at type def function, whereas you'll only see at type def object in just about any examples you look at, some stuff like that. But were you going to say something else, Dan? No, I'm just, I'm just saying that it, 
it's, that episode is definitely worth a listen, and I won't kidnap the conversation. I'll just say that there is a certain difference between how TypeScript started, which is very much influenced by, by C Sharp, and, and where TypeScript is today because uh, the, community, the JavaScript community bought into certain patterns and didn't buy into certain other patterns. So it's not necessarily as close to C Sharp as it used to be. But, but that's a whole different discussion and not one we have time for right now. Yeah, so I will, let me see if I can find a link to that real quick. What what number did you say that was? Four, six, did you say four, six? Four, eight, nine. It's better when I speak four, when I'm not muted. Four, eight, nine. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a matter for debate sometimes, <laughs> but we won't go down that road. Yeah, okay, so I will link to that one as well. And then also for, I, I wear glasses and I finally got a four-wheeler. And so I needed some goggles that would fit. And there is the Oakley L frame has little slits in the side of the goggle that will fit glasses, not large glasses, but medium or small glasses, not not necessarily hipster glasses, but just kind of glasses that the average person would wear will fit them pretty decently well. And Ooh, so- you just piqued Nick's interest there. Mr. Hipster Brown. So what's wrong with hipster glasses, man? Like, <laughs> I say, well, hipster Brown is all <laughs> because if they're if they're really big, you know, and mm. they they come up against the foam of the goggle, then they're not going to fit in right. So, or or if you've got a really big head and you got glasses that are extra wide, so these are the glasses that I normally wear, and these are actually meant for a head that's just slightly wider than mine by about half a centimeter. But you probably can't tell when they're on me because my head is only just ever so slightly smaller than what they're intended for. But these that no one listening can see, these do not fit in those. But I got uh, a few pairs from, I guess I might as well just mention, oh, I, I can't even remember their name. There's an online glasses company that you can you can literally get glasses for the, the whole thing for, for 10 or 15 bucks. And then five dollars of shipping, so you might, you know, just buy three or four different pairs and different styles. What is Zenny? Zenny. That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. Zenny. So you can get, I mean, good-looking prescription glasses from from Zenny. And what I did was I got the nicest-looking pair that I wanted, and then I also got just some super cheap ones to have as backups. And that's what I I use for my riding glasses as one of the super cheap pairs that's a little bit smaller. So I'll, I'll pick. I'll pick Zinni as well. Anyway, so the Oakley L-Frames and Zinni and uh, JS types. Those are my picks. Excellent. Dan, what do you got for us? Okay, so I've got a few as well. So my first pick is uh, the fact that I've got accepted to speak at the the Web Direction Summit conference uh, in December. And what's really cool about it is that it's in Sydney, Australia, and I've never been to Australia. So if you happen to be in Australia in the beginning of December, then, you know, I would recommend that you register to that event and come and see me and meet me there. And we can chat about JavaScript and web development and stuff. So that, that would be my, my first pick. My, my second pick is uh, we're watching the, unfortunately, the final episodes of Better Call Saul what is a strong candidate to be the best show on TV that I've ever watched. It's amazing. So on one hand, I'm really sad that it's drawing to, to a close. On the other hand, it just keeps on getting better 
with each episode. So it's, it's kind of great. And uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. Obviously, you, if you haven't, you need to watch Breaking Bad before you watch Better Call Saul. So if you've watched neither of them, you've got something like 12 seasons ahead of you. But it's just amazing television, in my opinion. Now, isn't Better Call Saul a prequel it's a, to Breaking it's Bad? A, it's effectively a prequel, although we are at the point where it's kind of, it's both a prequel and a sequel. In, in a kind of strange sort of a way. And, and now we're getting to the point where it's finally also concurrent. So, uh, so it's kind of building in from both, from both directions at the same time. It's really kind of interesting the way that they did that. But you do, you should watch Breaking Bad before watching Better Call Saul to get uh, the, the full benefit. And my final pick is going to be that same pick that I pick every time, which is the ongoing war in Ukraine, which is just keeps getting worse and worse. And, and unfortunately, we're, we're all kind of getting used to it. And that's really unfortunate in this context because it needs to be kept on, on our minds uh, so that, you know, anything that we can do to help the situation, we should. And those would be my picks for today. Excellent. I will go next and leave our our guests. I won't say the best for last because that's the dad jokes, but I'll leave them uh, for last. Let them have the last word. Interestingly enough, we're talking about IoT and I mentioned Arduino. I saw a article on Hacker News and knowing nothing about Arduino or IoT, I'll throw it out there anyway. It's from the Arduino blog and it talks about introducing multitasking to Arduino. So they're looking to do some work to handle multiple tasks simultaneously because it's needed more now than before, apparently. Uh, either of you guys have any comments on that? Just out of curiosity. You know, a lot of the, uh, I mean, it's great they're doing it. A lot of the microcontrollers have multiple cores. As Nick mentioned, um, we support uh, web workers. And so uh, a lot of our projects actually is in our commercial work are using both cores in parallel by uh, using web workers. And uh, it's it's awesome. I mean, it lets you do a whole lot more, especially when you're building like UIs. It stops, you know, just like the web, it stops you from blocking the UI when you've got stuff, other work to do. So good to see you doing that. Good. All right. So on to the dad jokes of the week. Let's see. First one here. Now, question. If Wonder Woman and Spider-Man started a business together, what would they name it? What? Amazon Web Services. <laughs> That's good. I like that one. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> Cross franchise yeah, yeah. is pretty good. Yeah. I mentioned AWS, but I didn't get your love on it. So I don't know if they liked it or not. So the other day I was talking to my wife and I said, you know how you talk about the someone seeing the cup as half full or half empty? So I said, do you think the cup is half full or half empty? And she said, Please, could you stop wearing my bra? Oh, man. Uh, But I have to give you one in return. They say that an optimist sees the cup as half full and the pessimist sees the cup as half empty and the developer says, well, you just could have used a smaller cup. There you go. They can give you a rim shot for that. (laughs) And then finally, so we all talk about, as developers, we always talk about, you know, side hustles or things like, say, Modable, you know, where people start up your own business. So I decided I'm going to go down that route. And I'm trying to start up a business that recycles discarded chewing gum. But the problem is I just need help getting it off the ground. (laughs) Yeah, that's one to to chew on there for a while. So Okay, moving on. Uh, Nick, do you have any picks for us? 
Sure. Something I mentioned earlier um, in place I was actually at this past weekend is a place called Micro Center, which is still a physical store, but also has online ordering for all sorts of maker projects, um, electronics. It's kind of one of the places I go to to explore and see what they have and maybe inspire some ideas for various projects. And I still like being able to go into a physical store and see some stuff. And they often have some really good deals on boards that might be we're kind of have a shortage, uh, you know, chip shortage affected also uh, single board computers, especially Raspberry Pi. You might find some uh, in the store that aren't seen online and without paying scalper prices. So still enjoy going to, to do that. So it's just finding your local micro center or just checking them out online. And then interestingly enough, microcenter.com. Brilliant. Yes. And we're talking about IoT stuff and something I've been, I just moved into my house a couple months ago. And one of the things that was on my list was setting up a security system. And so I've been really happy so far with the Abode security system, which has a pretty good balance of professional and do-it-yourself sort of setup and monitoring. So it has an optional subscription service for professional monitoring, but you don't need it in order for everything to work together, which is really kind of big for me. And it has a lot of local first integrations. It also integrates really well with HomeKit, which I use for my smart ecosystem, and also integrates with other devices over Z-Wave. Um, so I've been really happy with it so far, just getting started with it, but it's been really helpful. And so that was been a good one for me. And, and along those lines, I kind of want to pick the Matter standard for connected devices, also in, formerly known as CHIP, um, something I've been keeping an eye on and should be coming out and being published. We're talking about standards today, and this is hopefully be an actual standard for connected devices in your home and trying to be local and encrypted first with the option to speak to the wider internet through what they call border routers. So if you can invest in thread devices these days, uh, I would go for that and you might just have matter support when that comes out. And I'm very excited and I hope it doesn't become that XKCD comic about yet another standard. Um, And now we have you know, four or five or 12 um, out these days. Uh, oh, yeah. So, I was thinking about that cartoon earlier when we were talking about it. I, I, I was that. expecting you to say my new home security system is powered by JavaScript. This is my home address. Bring it on. <laughs> yeah. no, not I was, was going to say, I think that really matters, too. Hey. So h- how do you get... See, th- I'm very interested in having home security... I don't want it connected to the internet because I don't want anybody to just be able to hack Amazon sidewalk or whatever they call it and then get into my house, mm-hmm. which inevitably is going to happen and actually already has happened. Didn't uh, Amazon had their ring devices were hacked and then people could open doors that way. And then didn't they have another hack? Uh-huh. Um, That's one reason I don't use those devices. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I, I'm more interested in cameras than in the motion sensors or stuff like that, because you, you, know, you want to get something to give to the police. If somebody's already in your home, you kind of, you know, it's game over at that point. But right. so what are devices that you would recommend? Are there any brands that are implementing this or because I mean, basically the only thing that seems even close is ubiquity unify. So this is one of the big topics and what I was discussing for my talk at JSConf. Budapest was offline first IoT, something I look for in everything. And something that Matter actually covers is Matter over Wi-Fi to cover things like cameras. Well, what is, the what is Matter? For thread. And what, so what is the, Matter what is are these the, companies or these standards? Yeah, Matter is a standard for built on top of uh, the Thread network protocol, um, which uses the same uh, radio as it's a low power radio uh, frequency used for talking to 
various other devices that use Thread as well. Um, and then can operate, Matter also operates over Wi-Fi for higher bandwidth devices like cameras, as you specified. And then the default behavior for Thread devices that they only talk to each other and anyone can talk to each other on the Thread network. You don't need a special hub or anything like that. And then the only way to talk to outside of that network is through what they call border routers. And those border routers can be things like a router node, actual Wi-Fi router node, like Eero is doing this with their, um, they have thread-enabled Eero routers. The Apple TV can be one, and an I, uh, the whatever the speaker that they have, the HomePod Mini, is also can be a border router because it operates over a thread, depending on what, what your ecosystem is. And then any device in, because like, this is Google, this is Samsung, this is Apple, this is uh, Home Assistant, this is a bunch of different um, companies talking to each other and say, okay, we agree on this. And now all devices that use this standard can talk to each other no matter what ecosystem you bought them from. And then if that company were to go away, then they should still keep working because they all talk to the same standard. Um, so and there's even, yeah. Where would I find one? I mean, I get I get that so, there's a standard, but where can I get something at Walmart or how would I find one of these things? So the unfortunate part and why I say I'm looking forward to it is because it hasn't been published yet. It's been in the works okay. for several years. and But the They've published some details on, and some implementations as well online and on GitHub for like, here's what a thread or matter device will look like and how to start using it. And then that will help actual device makers and manufacturers to start building that into their devices. Hopefully this fall, when matter is actually published, we'll have official support for all various devices. And that's why I say invest in thread devices for low power efficient things because they will have most likely have matter support out of the box some zigbee devices may also get upgraded later depending on how much memory they need to to operate and so these are all like again we've had all these things before where we had z-wave zigbee wi-fi bluetooth and matter is hopefully collecting that into a more usable thing for like any typical consumer to go see like oh it has matter support. I should be able to use this on my on my network and not worry about having a separate hub and all these other all these other sort of things. As you talk about like cameras and things like that, one thing I like about the HomeKit ecosystem for myself is that they have a thing called HomeKit Secure Video as a part of their way of approving things for the HomeKit ecosystem. Is saying okay, if you support secure video, then none of that video leaves your network or can be saved and then encrypted to iCloud if you want as well. And so the doorbell I got actually has supports HomeKit Secure Video. And there are also things like Home Assistant you can look into that have local first camera support for all sorts of other devices that don't have, you know, don't have to be HomeKit. Out of the I recall there was... So those are generally the things I look for. I recall that there was this website a while back, a couple of years ago, that was basically just, uh, they were looking, finding unsecured security cameras around the world. And basically you could watch like the current video from any one of hundreds of thousands of security cameras from everywhere. Like I remember that. I that remember checking that so out. Yeah. Creepy and scary and cringe and all the hip words for ugh. Yeah, I would be careful about the, all the any sort of cheap IP camera you find online because you're like Peter saying you're never sure what's running on them and what the default behavior are behavior is so i'm willing to spend a little bit more if i know like where the origination from that is what the history of it is but do you have any specific brands you could recommend that if i was going to go get something today and do you actually trust that apple is keeping it private because i mm. 
I haven't been told otherwise. So right now I do. And unlike some of the so recent news has come out around Ring and Nest cameras are automatically shared to law enforcement without necessarily getting your approval first, which is something like I'd like to at least know if I'm going to be sharing that information outside of my home and have that choice to do so. And, well, they're, and they're being warranted in due process. Exactly, which is not part. So right now, Apple and many other camera makers have said we don't do that or we end it encrypt so we have no access to that information so that is my current trust in that ecosystem if i had absolutely no trust i would probably go the home assistant route and set up everything in my home and have it never leave my home network and do a lot more diy sort of work and so if you go to homeassistant.com they have a bunch of like the official integrations or home assistant io one of those and then their default is local so all the stuff that they integrate and all the sort of community around that defaults to local first and then they have a paid company behind it to support the home ecosystem or the home assistant ecosystem excuse me um, that's like five dollars a month for end-to-end encrypted sort of like outside network access so with the yeah. apple with the, with the apple system i'm going to look into home assistant as well i've heard about that mm-hmm. before but with the apple system do you do you know of any cameras that specifically support the security features you were talking about because i mean i see here all Arlo and Mm -hmm. Logitech. And I know that those companies, they have their own thing where they want you to connect in and log in and share your video with their system. So I guess Mm -hmm. they support HomeKit, but I highly doubt that they're, you know, security first. Do you know of any brands particularly that support that Apple security first type of camera access? Not off the top of my head, I don't actually have a lot of cameras because I need to do more research to make sure. Like, same thing, I don't have like smart door locks yet because that's another thing I want to make sure that I'm doing the right research into and and make sure I can depend on it. One thing I talk about in like my tenets of offline first IoT is like it must have a physical fallback for anything that controls, you know, some sort of access or anything like that. So, like, if for some reason like Wi-Fi goes out or battery dies in, in a lock, right? I want to be able to have a physical fallback as needed to be able to still get into somewhere and still have that control. And then from there, it is, you know, almost like progressive enhancement for having access to the wider internet or access to a, the connected network. And that's why I don't always like to call it IoT, just connected devices. They're connected in some way. They may not be connected to the internet or not. And I am very careful about what I expose to, you know, any sort of network including especially things that are security wise. So right now I'm mostly just monitoring uh, like door access and then having sirens and, and things like that and being able to inform local law enforcement if needed to. And so I'm, I'm slowly adding things. And and so right now the Bode has its own camera system uh, that doesn't actually integrate with HomeKit. And that's one of kind of my one knock against it until they have it in like the home app, even though I can still monitor it from my phone. So I'm still looking into a bit more of like which one I trust, even if it does support like, you know, HomeKit out of the box. Yeah, it's a, it's a scary world out there. You're never sure about, you know, what you're letting into your home. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've got a cheap little ring camera and I've been thinking about replacing that, getting some little more comprehensive and secure for a video and like outside the house and stuff too. So, all right. All right, Peter, we're finally to you. Are you still awake? Uh, yes, absolutely. Good. Thank you. Good. Uh, <laughs> So I, I got a couple. I got a couple things to share. We've talked a lot about standards, and I, I know to people who don't work in standards, they're really they can be really opaque and mysterious. And and one question that that comes up often is, you know, how do you decide what to standardize? How do you set priorities? How do you how do you figure out where where the right place to go is? 
And uh, there's a document called the Extensible Web Manifesto that at least for web standards that I think, and, and I apply it to IoT standards as well, I think is is a really great one. It's a it's almost 10 years old and it was written by a, a bunch of people who were leaders in the, the web at the time and many of them many of them still are. But uh, it, it talks about how you decide they they um, and a lot of the ideas that we kind of take for granted are really there. Like they really heavily promote starting from a very low level place because low level APIs can then be uh, in, kind of enable the most. I think we talked a little bit about uh, Google's Project Fugu, which I, I see as kind of adhering in, in many ways to the extensible web manifesto. Um, and then that allows a library, uh, uh, an ecosystem of modules on top of it that provide uh, kind of ease of use and, and application to different places. So uh, like, like Donovan's J5E, for example. So, uh, you know, if you're interested in standards and how to think about them, I, I think the extensible web manifesto is a pretty quick read and pretty interesting. On a much less geeky front, I, like uh, many, many, a surprising number of programmers anyway, uh, also play music. I am a, uh, a uh, terrible classical pianist, uh, but I enjoy it, so it just doesn't matter if it's terrible or not. Over the pandemic, I, I, I started uh, exploring the music of a Romantic-era uh, composer named Fanny Mendelssohn. She's long was long overlooked, but is getting, getting a lot of recognition these days. She, she, um, very little was published in her lifetime and she performed very seldomly, but and as a result, her music is, I think, wildly experimental for romantic era stuff. And I think also much more personal. Like I always feel like her, when she was writing, especially for piano, she was writing for herself versus like a, an audience. And so, uh, if you're interested in kind of a, a pianist, you know, piano music you've never heard from, from an era, you know, of, of other great composers that you have heard of, check out Fanny Mendelssohn. She has a suite of piano pieces called The Year, uh, one for each month, that are, are really fun. Any um, relation yeah, to the well-known composer Mendelssohn? Ah, uh, Dan, you took my question. <laughs> just she, uh, I, you know, in fact, I, uh, I deliberately didn't mention that because she's lived for or existed for 150 years in the shadow of her brother, Felix. And you know, I think, uh, I mean, he, he was brilliant too, uh, but I, I think in her own way, she really stands alone and is uh, just an incredible, I mean, from all I've read, just an incredible individual. And so uh, well, well worth checking out. Excellent. All righty. We have gone so long. This is going to be a packed long episode, Maybe a double episode for those who have made it this far. Yes. So before we go, Nick, how can people get a hold of you or yell at you or say, what are you working on or whatever they want to communicate with you? So I'm on Twitter and GitHub in most places as Hipster Brown, all one word. If you see Charlie Brown with the mustache and glasses, that's me, a hipsterbrown.com. And you can find XS Dev on my GitHub as, GitHub as well. So github.com slash Instagram slash XS hyphen dev and working on a lot of documentation and education sides of that. So if you are interested in, in getting involved there or just want to help prompt me for things you want to learn more about, let me know and I'm happy to help out. Now, it should be worth noticing that the amazing mustache we were talking about, according to your GitHub page, it is a figment of our imagination. So I'm not sure amazing which trick, one to believe. Yeah. Yes, it is. Very good. All right, Peter, how about you? Yeah, I'm on uh, I'm on Twitter at, uh, my name is weird, so I'll just spell it out, at P-H-O-D-D-I-E. You can reach me there. And Modable is at modable.com. And on Twitter at, um, at Modable, M-O-D-D-A-B-L-E, tech. So feel free to reach out uh, either way. Excellent. 
All right. Oh, before we leave, I would like to also say thank you to the studio audience. Yes, yes, yes they agreed it was a good show, too. I am on Twitter. I always forget to mention this, so I'm remembering it now. I am on Twitter at Wonder95. If you want to see my dad joke of the day, you can always follow me there. Uh, AJ, I forget. You were cool, AJ86. Now you're... No, so I'm cool age 86. Okay. I, I switched for a year to something else, and then I realized that that was just stupid, and I was able to switch back. Right. Okay. And then Dan is Dan Shapir. Yes. I am Dan Shapir as Dan Shapir. And for uh, if you're reading Dan's tweet, you almost half the time you will have to use the translate tweet function if you don't read Hebrew. Oh, no. I just, I just so, reply in Hebrew. I, don't, I hardly tweet in Hebrew. So. Okay. Just the replies. Yeah. Okay. I use that function frequently when reading your replies. So I just realized, you know, I used to copy paste over to Google to translate. Then I realized, oh, if you click on the tree, there's a translate tweet function. Yeah, there are elections coming on in Israel yet again. And sometimes I can't help myself and I respond to some people when I shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. All righty. So with that, we will wrap up this episode of JavaScript Jabber. Thank you to Peter and Nick for coming on and enlightening us about IoT. And we will talk at you next time. Bye. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.